0: Amen, I trust that is your testimony this evening. We are longing for and looking forward to eternity in heaven. Over the last many weeks, we have studied the Bible's teaching of future events. And we examined the rapture of the church from First Thessalonians 4. Jesus will meet his bride, the church, in the air and take us to be with him forever. Next, the judgment seat of Christ, literally the Bema seat of Christ, a reference to the ancient Olympic Games in which athletes were rewarded and awarded for running their races. The marriage supper of the Lamb is to follow. It's the consummation and the celebration of our union with Jesus Christ as his bride. On earth, the rise and the fall of the Antichrist, Satan's agent who tries to tries to gain final control of the earth during the days of the tribulation. Those seven years, also known as Daniel's 70th week, when God pours out his wrath on the earth in a series of judgments like the world has never known or experienced before. Then the second coming of, of Jesus. Jesus returns to earth at the Mount of Olives and defeats the enemies of Christ at the battle of Armageddon which is then followed by the 1,000-year kingdom reign and rule of Jesus Christ here on this earth. This evening, I'd like to conclude this series of studies on future events with uh, a look at at heaven. And public polls reveal that 80% of all Americans believe in a place called heaven, And an equal number of people generally want to go to heaven when they die. But what do we really know about heaven? And beyond the imaginations of artists and authors, what does the Bible teach us? Beyond the vague sense of the afterlife in a better place, what does the Bible teach us about heaven? The Bible tells us us that heaven is God's dwelling place. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. It's God's dwelling place. Not only God the Father, also where Christ is today, Acts chapter one, the angel said, men of Galilee, to the disciples, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. It's where Christ is. Heaven is the place where Christians go when they die. Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I live out in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, that better place Heaven is a city, a country that's built by God. Hebrews 11, Abraham waited for the city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Also there then in verse number 16, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Heaven is... What we might call paradise. It's what Jesus said from the cross to the man on the cross Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, this evening, for the next 20, 30 minutes, I'd like us to think upon heaven. And as groundbound earthlings, we're most often consumed with our lives here and now on this earth, in this world. But our best lives are not here and now. Rather, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that we can always be with the Lord. And this evening, as we think upon heaven, I, I don't want us to only think upon heaven as a, in the sphere of space as a, a place, which it is, a, a literal place, but also in the sphere of time. It's for eternity It's the hope of the believer that we will always be with the Lord. And so don't allow your imagination and your affection to be captured by the material or the physical place. Be mindful that this is for eternity with the Lord. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll look at the Scripture together. God in heaven... Our heads and our hearts are bowed before you, recognizing that while you are transcendent far above us, in heaven above, you are yet near to us. You are imminent near to us. And Lord, it's with awe and wonder that we marvel that you are even mindful of us as your creation. But God, you desire and you intend for us to spend eternity with you. Those that have received Jesus Christ by faith have been reconciled to you through his shed blood on the cross. What I pray that you would enlarge our minds and our hearts this evening with the joy, the hope, the surety of, of eternity with you in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This evening... Revelation 21 and the early verses of 22 were read for us in dramatic fashion. It's the most comprehensive picture of heaven that we have. And and I want you to turn there again with me to Revelation 21. It tells us about events after all of the happenings that John recorded would take place in time. Revelation 21 introduces us to the ultimate future event and the ultimate future event is eternity. And so we must no longer think just in terms of sequential or chronological events in the space of time, but rather we leave time itself, we dwell with God who exists in a wholly different dimension. We call it the eternal state. And and so when we think of heaven, we, we first default to thinking of that place. But I want us to wonder not only in what it is like but in fact that it is the presence of God for eternity. Now the Bible references heaven more than 500 times. The book of Revelation mentions heaven some 50 times. It is a real literal place that Jesus described to his disciples as a a place of many mansions or many rooms. You're familiar with John 14 verses two and three there. It's a place of no more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. We read earlier in the service. It's no wonder that Paul said, for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. This is in fact better for me. We begin in Revelation 21, verse number 1. Now, I, this is the Apostle John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now, John has repeatedly reported. On the revelation given to him by saying, I saw. In fact, that's how he began his first epistle, 1 John that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon, that which we have seen, we declare to you. Early in Revelation, He was commanded to write the things that he saw. And here now in chapter 21, verse number one, he says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Can you imagine seeing what John saw in this this vision? We know that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah 6. We know that the Apostle Paul was cut up to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. John here is given a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. This is the sight of the new heaven and earth from verse number one. Roman numeral number one in your, your notes. The sight of Of the new heaven and earth. And what John saw is first referenced by Isaiah's prophecy, in which God said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall be remembered, not be remembered, or come to mind. And then also Isaiah saying, For as the new heavens and new earth which I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And, And so we accept the Bible record of what John saw. What Isaiah saw, what the Apostle Paul saw, a sight of of heaven. However, what do we do with others who have claimed to have seen heaven? Lots of people claim a lot of things. A lot of people claim to have seen or heard a lot of things. And when it comes to the matter of heaven, um, people have made claims to have seen heaven. Heaven, and they've written books and they've made movies telling their stories. There's one book that's titled 90 Minutes in Heaven. Sold millions of copies. There's another perhaps you're familiar with. uh, Heaven is for real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. Uh, It made it to the New York Times list of bestsellers. It was actually written by his dad, uh, claiming to recount what his son had seen. But I would caution you regarding such claims of those who have seen heaven. And, and in fact, I would even tell you not only be cautious, I would, I would tell you to reject them. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment not to make temporary visits to heaven and return to life. When the Apostle Paul was caught up to heaven, this is 2 Corinthians 12, he was given an abundance of revelation, but he refused to report on it. In fact, I would submit to you that the Apostle John would not have recorded what he recorded for us here in his revelation if he had not been commanded to do so. Revelation 1, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And so what do we do then with those who claim to have seen Heaven, I think Charles Spurgeon gives us good counsel. I've copied this for you there in your notes. He says, it's a little heaven below to imagine sweet things, but never think that imagination can picture heaven. When it is most sublime, when it is freest from the dust of earth, when it is carried up by the greatest knowledge and kept steady by the most extreme caution, imagination Cannot picture heaven, even if, if we're most careful about it. It hath not entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Spurgeon goes on to say, Imagination is, is good, but not to picture to us heaven. Your imaginary heaven you will find by and by to all be a mistake, though you may have piled up fine castles, you will find them to be castles in the air, and they will vanish like thin clouds before the gale, for imagination cannot make a heaven I have not seen nor ear heard, neareth entered the heart of man to conceive it." And so it's important for us to set our minds on things above, but know that the fancies of our finite minds can never fully describe the glories of heaven. Whatever understanding that we might claim, we must claim from the scripture, the text of the scripture alone, not the imaginations of man. And while we might muse on the glories of heaven, imagine the golf courses in heaven. I think we err in trying to even, in our human faculties, imagine how good and how great it could be apart from the revelation of Scripture. But the Apostle John, John the Revelator, was given a sight of heaven. Here in verse number one, he speaks of it as the new heaven. It's it's not something new in in just a chronological sense. It's something new in a qualitative sense as in something that has never been seen before. And the new is necessary because the old will be destroyed by divine judgments. Also notice here the, the single feature that John cited, Revelation 21, verse number one, Um, is that there's no more sea. That's a a curious note. Right now, the earth is covered in water. Three-fourths of the earth is is covered in in sea, but there'll be no more sea. And Bible scholars don't know exactly how to explain why this change matters, what it means, and why it matters, but we know from Revelation 21, verse 1, and, and then verse 17, that there will still be a river. It'll be the river of the water of life. Look at verse number two. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is number two, the city of the the new heaven and the new earth. And the primary city in the eternal heaven will be this new city of Jerusalem. We know that the The earthly city of Jerusalem was destroyed and rebuilt a few different times. Of course, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and took Judah captive. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Jerusalem is currently the most controversial piece of real estate in all of the world. But during the millennium, there will be the restored city of Jerusalem where Jesus will reign for God has chosen Jerusalem as the place for his name. And then there will be this new eternal city. And John saw that city coming down out of heaven from God. Hebrews 11 tells us that its builder and its maker is, is God. And In fact, Hebrews 12 seems to imply that the city may have already been built. Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. You can look it up later. This may already be prepared and built. It may also be the place that Jesus promised to prepare for his disciples. John chapter 14, I referenced that a a moment ago. His father's house with many rooms. But when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, this city will descend into the midst of it. Look at verse number 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so we've got the city of of the new heaven. Number three, the person of the new heaven. And I would point you to verse number three. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The beauty of heaven that we read of earlier in our service and the glory of heaven that we read of earlier in our service from Revelation 21 and 22 will be eclipsed by the beauty and glory of God. And so folks, I would caution us not to stoop to be dazzled by the pearly gates and the streets of gold because ultimately God's presence is what makes heaven heaven the person of heaven, and the idea there of of tabernacling, verse number three, it's so significant that the voice from the throne repeats it a couple times. Look at verse number three, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, and and forgive me, I, I don't have the voice of God, I don't have the voice of Tom Oberg either, you understand, but the voice from heaven is, is citing this and he's saying this in verse number three. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will be present there. What will that be like? It was the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter who once wrote a book on heaven it's it's titled the saints everlasting rest and i don't have this printed for you but you can follow on the screen doubtless as god advanceth our senses and enlarges our capacity i'll smooth out the old english as i read this he enlarges our capacity so will he advance the happiness of those senses and fill up with himself all that capacity We shall then have light without a candle and perpetual day without the sun. We shall then have enlightened understandings without scripture and be governed without a written law for the Lord will perfect his law in our hearts and we shall all be all perfectly taught of God. We shall have joy which we drew not from the promises nor fetched home by faith or or hope He says, We shall have communion without sacraments, without this fruit of the vine, when Christ shall drink it new with us in his Father's kingdom and refresh us with the comforting wine of immediate enjoyment. To have necessities but no supply is the case of them in hell. To have necessities supplied by means of the creatures is the case of us on earth. To have necessity supplied immediately from God is the case of the saints in heaven. To have no necessity at all is the prerogative of God himself. And ultimately, we know that when we see God, John said in his first epistle, Beloved, we are the children of God has not yet been revealed what we shall be like. So all of these expanded capacities and, and sensibilities that'll be filled up by God's presence, we, we, we don't yet fully know what that's like, but we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Look at verse number four, Revelation 21, verse number four. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, nor the former things for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I would offer you number four, the difference in the new heaven and earth. The difference between this present world and future heaven are like night and day. And there's so much that could be said at this point from the scripture text, but just looking at verse number four alone, I would offer you these ideas. God will wipe away every tear, verse number four. Some have mused that perhaps when we arrive in heaven, there will be tears of grief over our sin or over other loved ones who are lost, but then God will wipe those tears away. Others suggest that it simply means that all human sorrow will be turned to eternal joy. There will be, God will wipe away every every tear. How about this? There will be no more death. Also in verse 4, of course, we know that death is a consequence of sin, and because of sin, death is spread to all men, Romans chapter 5. However, in in heaven, death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. And I look forward to that, and you look forward to that, as death and the grief of death is, is repeatedly present here on this earth. How about this? There'll be no more sorrow. No more sorrow, that should say. No more s- crying, no more pain. And folks, the, the longer we live and the, the older I get, the more pain I recognize. And life is a painful experience. There's physical pain, there's emotional pain. You, you understand these things, but in our glorified, sin free bodies, in the presence of God, there'll be no more pain. Why are these things different from our present experience? Because our old, fallen, human creation will pass away. And the one who sits on the throne here speaking will make all things new. Now, at this point, imagine with me that the Apostle John is is a little mesmerized He has just received an enormous body of revelation. We know it as the book of Revelation. And he has seen the ugliest of things. As God has revealed to him the events of the tribulation period, the atrocities that are described there in chapters 6 through 16 and following. But then it's as if God has to snap John back to attention and say, hey, hey, are you following? Are you keeping up? Are you paying? I want you to write this down. Look at verse number five. Then he who sat on the throne and said, behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said, it is done. Write this down, John. Don't let your imagination trail off. Stick with me. This is critically important. Verse six. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my my son. This is number five the citizens of the, the new heaven? Who are the, the, the residents or the inhabitants or the citizens of, of heaven? And there's really two identifiers. The first is there in verse number six, if you're looking at it, the one who thirsts. And the most mo- motif of thirsting for God is not something new. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, as the deer pants for the water brook. So my soul thirsts for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The motif isn't only something we find in the pages of the Old Testament, but also Jesus in his teaching in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus promised, everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again, for whoever drinks of, the, of this after that, I will give him, shall never thirst again. And so the the citizens of the new heaven and the new earth will be the ones who have recognized their need of living water and have sought it from Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the citizens of heaven will be those who who have thirsted. Um, The one who thirsts, also the one who overcomes. And this then is in verse number seven. Verse seven if you see it there. And and I would cite first John five verses four and five. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomers in verse number seven are the ones who will inherit this eternal heaven. And you might also remember that John used this language at the each of his letters to the churches in, in chapters one through three, and and, and the promises. are are that these citizens will be overcomers and they will inherit these things and God will be our God. And so really, at this point, I think to myself, what what are we waiting for, right? It's what Paul said to the Romans, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of our bodies, the redemption of our, our bodies. But, Sadly, there will be others who are not there. And that's the exiles of the new heaven. Verse number eight, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And it's clear that this verse does not teach one is saved by works, but rather those who habitually practice these works are, are not saved. It's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous drunkards, or revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, Paul said to the Corinthians. Such were some of us, I might say to the Fourth Baptist Church, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. And so there will be Many, a majority that will be exiled eternally from that home in heaven. Folks, as we read these things, our our thoughts of heaven ought to be informed by the scripture. And we don't have time this evening to to explore all that was read for us earlier by Tom. But I want to caution us Don't allow your imagination to be captured by authors and artists outside of the Scripture. But go to the Scripture and think upon heaven as much as you can because the amount of time that we think about heaven, I think, does reveal something about our spiritual condition. As we walk on this earth and we plod on this sod, as earthlings, as ground-bound humans, pilgrims and strangers in this world, and we think upon heaven, and, and so I would have us to look forward to heaven, just quickly as we conclude. Looking forward to heaven, number one is an evidence of salvation. We often say, "Home is where the heart is. Well, where is your heart?" Where is your home? If you are looking forward to heaven, there is strong evidence of your salvation. Hebrews 11 explains that the heroes of faith recognized they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Their citizenship was in heaven, and so consequently, they desired that heavenly home, that heavenly country. So looking forward to heaven is an evidence of your salvation. It's secondly, number two, it's an energizer of your sanctification. We meditate upon heavenly things and it transforms our lives. We set our hearts upon these heavenly things and we seek those things which are above Colossians 3. I wish we had time to turn there and read Colossians 3. It's an energizer of our sanctification. It is number three, it's an ease for our suffering. When you are focused on heaven above, and on eternity before you. The sufferings of this life are, what did Paul say there? 2 Corinthians, he says they're a momentary light affliction. That'll keep things in perspective. You're suffering today. There is conflict, and there is crisis. There is consternation in your life But it's light and it passes. It's for a moment. It'll ease our suffering. How about this? It's an exercise against sin. An exercise against sin. Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and and peace. And I assure you, you will never be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It's never happened. It's an exercise against sin. And then it's simply this. It's an excitement for the Savior. An excitement for the Savior. Fanny Crosby, the blind poet, the hymn writer, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, And his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. I hope this evening that you desire with Paul to be with Christ, which is much better, far better, than anything this world, this life, can offer. Let me pray. God, thank you for the Bible record of heaven. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a glimpse, a hint of the glories of eternity in your presence forevermore. Lord, we do desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as we read at the beginning of our service with our shepherd. God, our imaginations are are incapable of fully appreciating the things that you have in store for us, but I pray that your spirit, through your word, would give us a longing, an appetite, a desire for heaven above where you are. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we conclude by singing the old gospel hymn, When We All Get to Heaven? I hope that you can sing it with enthusiasm as it was written. Let's stand together and let's sing.